Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Amy X. Wong, our music business reporter for Rolling Stone, and Amy wrote a great article recently about sort of the history and impact of GarageBand on music. GarageBand being, of course, the Apple program that started on computers and then went to iOS so you can have it on your phone, you can have it on your iPad, and it's democratized music making in a really impactful way, for better and for worse. But before we get to that, and hi Amy, welcome to the show. Hey Brian, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And before we get to that, I thought we'd back up and talk a little bit about the history of home recording, because it obviously started well before GarageBand. I think one of the first people to actually record at home was Les Paul, the jazz artist and guitarist who paid $10,000 in the 40s for one of the earliest eight-track reel-to-reels. And he pioneered a lot of overdubs, basically overdubbing himself. He was one of the first people to do that. And I think it's intriguing to compare a $10,000 giant machine in your house to the ability to do that on your phone anywhere. (laughs) That says a lot about where we've come. And then so it it continued as something for a tiny minority of well-off musicians because there was no real home recording equipment, not really. Someone like Pete Townsend, as early as 64 or so, had multi-track tape machines in his house. And you can hear on the album Scoop and its sequels where he released the demos he was making for The Who. And he was, again, like a kind of a pioneer of every band. And then, you know, first it started as people in bands making demos that were then sort of brought to life by other musicians. And now there is the distinction between demos and a release recording has been demolished because basically, you know, you can make obviously a record by yourself. But Pete Townsend was a real pioneer in that. And he actually played drums himself. A lot of people don't know that he would play his own version of drums and then kind of like Keith Moon would Keith Moon it out. And then if you look at something like the basement tapes, that was a home recording. It was recorded in a basement. And again, very lo-fi, Dylan and the band. And, you know, it continued on. It started to become a little bit more common in the 70s. And then what happened was there was, around 1981, the first Tascam Porta Studio came out. And the Porta Studio was a four-track cassette recorder. And it was relatively inexpensive. And it allowed you to do all those things that Pete Townsend and Les Paul did for thousands of dollars in the 40s and 60s at home on a cassette. And albeit with a lot of hiss when you started layering tracks and overdubbing. But very shortly, it came out in the early 80s, very shortly by 1982, someone made the first work of releasable art with a four-track, and that was Bruce Springsteen, as it happens, with Nebraska. And I think, again, it speaks to changing times that even Springsteen himself with Nebraska had no sense that he was making a record for the world to hear. The whole idea was he had been spending tens and tens of thousands of dollars in the studio recording songs with the E Street Band that he would then decide weren't any good and wouldn't put out. And so he wanted to be able to at least hear the songs in some primitive version so he could decide whether they were worth studio time. So he got this four track, didn't even use a professional engineer. He used his roadie, Mike Batlin, to record with him. And he used a guitar pedal for the Echo, and then they mixed it onto a boombox that was not even a good boombox, and that had also had an incident of being drowned in the rain, so there was something like really wrong with it. And it became sort of the first lo-fi home recording. I don't know if we have anything from Nebraska ready to play, but let's just uh, play whatever Matt feels like playing from Nebraska.
So at one point, the idea of sort of homemade recordings was associated with something that used to be called lo-fi, which isn't really a thing anymore because, again, you can make hi-fi stuff on your phone or on an iPad. But things like Guided by Voices, that was their entire sound. Even Beck's debut, Mo Gold, I think was like an 8-track reel-to-reel, but still pretty lo-fi, ween, all that stuff. But once computers came into the recording process, suddenly the distinction, again, between home recording and just recording started to get demolished. And then there's also, and hip-hop, of course, I mean, a shocking amount of early hip-hop was actually recorded in pro studios, even though it didn't necessarily have to be. But there's a significant amount of it that was home recordings. Prince Paul's first productions for De La Soul was recorded, I think, in his, his home on Long Island. Even the, the first Wu-Tang album was partly home recorded. The Fuji's debut was recorded entirely in a basement, although, again, it was a pretty sorted out basement studio. But all these things, MIDI, synths, allowed people to escape the need to have an acoustic space to record in. You know, obviously, if you have to record live drums, for instance, you need a big drum room to get the drum sounds right. Once you eliminate that necessity, suddenly you essentially need a laptop and a microphone. I think we have something from the Fuji's. Let's hear something from the first Fuji's album, if we can. I want all the refugees out there to just put up your motherfucking hand. You know you're a fucking immigrant. Put up your hands, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to start this shit off like this, this time around. I kind of want to keep that going. So that very brief history, I guess, brings us to GarageBand and brings us to you, Amy. How did GarageBand start for Apple? I believe they bought and acquired a company. Like That's the way many Apple stories start. They did, yes. So for anybody familiar with Logic, which is the kind of pro, more sophisticated version of GarageBand, Logic and GarageBand were owned by another company that Apple acquired kind of quietly 20 years ago. And that was really the start of GarageBand and its ambitions in the music making space. So you have to think about Apple's ambitions here in the context of what were they trying to do and why? Why did they suddenly snap up this piece of music production software? And it was because at that time they were launching the Mac and the idea of a Mac as something that you could have in your home and essentially do wild creative things on. So there was photos or photo at the time, iMovie, and GarageBand was part of that as something that could really democratize not just music, but entertainment and creativity. They keep saying the phrase, unleash creativity, or people in the world keep saying that, but it was truly at the core of that. Apple mission back then. And GarageBand came out very quietly because, you know, it wasn't the main draw of Macs. Nobody bought a MacBook because they wanted to make music. Well, actually, some people did, but most people just wanted a MacBook because it was cool. And then slowly they were discovering that there was a small program on it that was actually secretly very, very powerful because it had all of this magic that was in it from, you know, being designed for years and worked on for years before Apple acquired it and then perfected with that sort of signature Apple touch for perfect design. And now you could have a beat looped and then you could play a guitar on top of it 
that was not a real guitar, that was just part of the free program, you could loop a vocal track on it, and suddenly you had a song that was actually good enough to submit as a demo or take to a record label if you were good enough as a musician or if you refined it enough and did all that. And the cost of producing a song became from something like several thousand dollars an hour for a recording studio, paying all the musicians, laying down everything perfectly, doing it again and again, to almost zero dollars if you actually did the entire thing within GarageBand, which is pretty incredible. Well, in a way, it's very congruent with the original mission of the Mac when it was launched in the 80s, but they just didn't have, (laughs) the technology wasn't ready. The idea was when they first launched the Mac, it was like, here, you can kind of draw on this. The word processing is what you see, what you get, which actually was unique at the time in the 80s. And Steve Jobs had this thing, it's a bicycle for the mind, that it would facilitate what's in your brain and help you bring it out into the world. And GarageBand actually makes incredible sense along with that stuff. So it came out in 2004. And I feel like you're right. I think it it took a while for people to really, really notice it. Also, as with a lot of these things, it got a lot better very quickly. Yeah, that's also very true. So in the start, there were, you know, a handful of drum loops, guitar loops, etc. But then as they were building out GarageBand, they added so many more instruments in intricate features, such as there's a drum feature where you can sort of tap on a screen to create different effects and it doesn't necessarily need to look like a drum machine or a drum kit in front of you. There are other instruments from Asia and Africa and all around that you can sort of experiment with. There are voice loops in there. There are animal noises and all these sort of odd things that you can put in there. And importantly, all of that is royalty free. Apple has acquired the rights to all of those things so that people don't have to worry about what they're paying or, you know, figure out any of the complicated copyright stuff that artists typically have to deal with and can often be really discouraging for, you know, a young aspiring musician who's like, how do I make sure I don't get sued for all of this kind of stuff? And it took that part out of the equation as well. So I want to talk about how musicians have actually used GarageBand. But before we get there, let's talk about your trip to Apple's headquarters where you got to see how they make some of the synth instruments and loops and that kind of thing. When was this? What was it like there? What happened? Yeah, so a few weeks or months ago, I went to Apple's Cupertino headquarters, which is like a huge spaceship-like dome thing that was written about in the news a few months ago when it first opened because it was so radically large and completely like a takeover of the town. So what's interesting is that that building, which is Apple's, you know, signature, very aesthetic headquarters, is an all-glass building that's meant to be very transparent, everybody kind of walking around all the time, being open, being friendly, and then there's a shuttle that takes you to about a destination five minutes away that's just like an old corporate looking cinder block building that houses the GarageBand studio. And the reason for that is, one, you need a really secure soundproof space, and two, they kind of like to keep GarageBand under the radar. The handful of engineers who work there are really, really modest. I mean, they work all day in a soundproof room that doesn't have windows. So it takes a certain kind of personality to like really, really enjoy that, of course. And (laughs) they're just not part of the loop at all at Apple in the headquarters, I mean. And they're just comfortable doing their own thing. And so when I was there, I watched them record a few instruments and re-record things because they're constantly refining things or deciding that, you know, maybe the upright bass 
space needs a touch-up this year because it was last recorded five years ago or something. And so when I was there, they actually reeled in upright bass, which is like a hefty thing that sits in the middle of the room. And they had someone come in and that person's job was to literally pluck every string 40 times, hold that for seven seconds and hold his breath for seven seconds as he was doing that so that it could record a pristine audio clip of that sound. But then that sound was later used by the engineers to essentially be cut and mixed into one perfect sound. So like say you play an F and you have to play it 40 times for the different resonances to come in. I'm literally going to play an F right now <laughs> on, my, on my garage band on the upright bass in my garage band. Right, here we go. There you go. So that sound, that single note, is the composite of hours of this person holding their breath and plucking this instrument, engineers coming in and grabbing the exact parts of the one sound to make the perfect sound that they deem is like the perfect F for the upright bass. And then you have to account for the fact that if you press something harder, it can create a longer F or a shorter F or like a, a more dramatic F, you know. Yeah, and there's that bounce in the end. So there's that over and over again. And if you repeat that for every single note on every single string on a bass, you finally get, you know, maybe they could spend, they spend anywhere from weeks to months just doing a single instrument and recording that. And so that's half their job. Um, in this Cupertino studio and the other half is synthesized instruments or instruments that are already in the computer and were never meant to reproduce any sort of original acoustic instrument. So those are sounds that you hear often in EDM and other things that are like very obviously synth but of course still require a lot of detail because you can't just have like a random noise that is appeasing to the ear. You have to design it, you have to really curate it and program it in such a way that it makes sense in terms of being something in a professional song and potentially being part of a widely released, you know, heard by millions of people on the radio type of thing, which is actually what happens with, I mean, I think we'll get to that later, but what happens with artists who literally take a garage band loop and then just bring it to the studio, maybe put some other stuff on top of it, maybe just leave it as is and then release it to the world. Yeah, no, it's wild. So here, yeah. So someone like worked on that a ton to get these every little bit of this right. Yeah. So what you're hearing is like dozens of people in a room together without windows (laughs) sitting there for hours a day, weeks, sometimes years, just doing that. Getting getting the exact fade of the cloud of uh, reverb and the harmonic decay and all that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And there's like the philosophical aspect of it too, where you're like, how do we, you know, an iPad is two dimensional, a laptop is two dimensional in terms of the program itself. How do we create a three dimensional sound onto a two dimensional surface? So like if you play violin, a vibrato on a violin requires moving your finger back and forth in a particular way. Can you reproduce that on an iPad with a flat surface and no string, for instance? Something like a horn, perhaps would be really difficult because you don't play that with your fingers originally. So how do you create that sort of similar feeling and mood without reproducing the actual instrument in 3D? And I should have mentioned there's been other sort of easy to use programs. I think one that's super well known or was super well known is Fruity Loops. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, there's a couple people who might still use that here and there, but that was essentially a hip hop thing. And it was a relatively easy program to make beats in and there's definitely some famous rap songs that are made there also was kind of there was a little bit of derision attached to producers who use fruity loops 
which is still kind of comes with GarageBand stuff, but less so as everyone starts using it. And it's also, unlike Fruity Loops, GarageBand can be used in a lot of different ways, including just, you know, you, you can assemble a bunch of loops or, or you can record everything from scratch. People brought up in your story and people have, have brought up in other stories, like a, a Pitchfork piece that was very good from a few years ago. It's just this idea, it can get a little scary when it makes it, a couple things, when it makes it too easy, because you can democratize stuff to the point where everyone's releasing their crap, and that's probably why I put some garbage out on MySpace uh, a long time ago. And I know from my experience, like I used to write songs pretty seriously a very long time ago, but something about GarageBand, you can do something completely half-assed. And with three clicks, you could have it out to the internet forever. And in some cases, that's led to, you know, some real beautiful success stories. I mean, you know, look at Billie Eilish, look at a million things. On other hand, it's just led to a flood of stuff. It's amazing that the good stuff ever gets heard. So I blame myself in part. So there's that. But that's, I think, less important than the other thing, which is just that as it becomes more easy to use and more sort of a guided path, it sounds like there's some people, even producers, who are concerned that everyone's kind of walking along the dotted line that's provided for them by this app and others. Is that something that people were expressing to you? Totally, yeah. And that's not to say that every artist is going to start releasing music that sounds the same if they use GarageBand, but more so that... You know, if you have a set of defaults, if you open up a program and it looks the, exactly the same for everyone with exactly the same set of features, then there are going to be certain things that are overused or too popular almost because they're already there and so easy. And that's the discussion that the music business and music producers and music makers are kind of having. Like if you have a drum loop that's easily accessible via a button, is everyone just going to press it and then we'll just have stuff on that? Not to say that it's bad, not to say the drum loop could be not, you know, it could be amazing. It could be like the next big thing, but odds are that it's not if someone is just defaulting to it and not layering on their own real true creative work. But no one's really figured out a way to prevent that from happening because it's a trade-off between the accessibility of music and, you know, what you can do with it. Absolutely. And I mean, some of the funniest things have been great or at least famous songs being made from total presets in GarageBand. And what's funny is personally using the program, I always was like, oh, it's kind of cheating to just use the loops that are in there. I'll make my own drum loops, that kind of thing for the most part. And yet probably the brilliance of successful producers is they didn't necessarily think that way. <laughs> I think the most incredible example is going to be something called Vintage Funk Kit 03. But listeners may know it by a different name. Let's hear Vintage Funk Kit 03 from GarageBand, a preset. <laughs> So, that is, of course, the intro also to Umbrella by Rihanna. And the story goes that the producers were just kind of messing around and they heard it. And look, at the same time, like, there's no real difference between sampling a license-free drum loop from a program made by Apple versus sampling, you know, the beginning of Walk This Way or something. It's it's the same thing. There's just something, I think our sensibilities are, are just slightly horrified, I think. <laughs> There's just something about it, right, that it, it feels a little scary that you can make a hit song that easily. But of course, one could argue 
what I was trying to say is it's probably the least important part of the hit song in some ways because they had to write everything else over it. They just used it as their base and they could have replaced it with something else. But in the end, they were like, well, it's license free. It sounds good. Go for it. You know? Yeah, that's totally a valid way of looking at it. Like if the end result is good, if it's good music and a really creative effort, then what does it matter? You know how they got there. But the question then becomes, you know, what if it's not good music? Then like whose fault is it? <laughs> like, like, what have we done? What has everyone done kind of thing? But yeah, to your point, that song, the base of Umbrella, has been used in a number of different songs, less recognizably because, you know, you can slow things down, you can speed it up, you can sort of dress it up so that it doesn't sound anything like that that's used in Umbrella. But the basic point is there, like an experienced producer and an experienced engineer will be able to recognize that sound as vintage funk kit three, which is kind of funny and kind of like a an Easter egg to hear for people in the industry who can kind of nod along onto the radio and be like, ah, that's garage band. Like that's a thing that I've spent hours listening to on end. Well I think part of the genius is not disguising it and not replacing it. You know, it's just like that is the right beat, we're gonna use it. Screw it, you know? And so actually let's hear the actual umbrella just for a second. Uh-huh. 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 To be fair, they did add some reverb and stuff. It, 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 it's slightly more there, compressive. There's some lyrics. Yeah, and, and yes, and and an entire song on top of it. Yeah, it, it was like Tricky Stewart and the Dream were the uh, were the producers. I would say the one that astonishes me, and these are ones that people pull out all the time. But there's a song called "Love in This Club" by Usher, and I mean. Part of what makes it make more sense what they did is that it was sort of an attempt to like, oh, let's mix R&B with a little bit of a generic rave thing, a bit of a generic EDM thing. And so they went looking for what's the most generic EDM thing we could find. And they used some presets on GarageBand and not just a preset synth sound, but a preset synth loop. And I think if you just, we don't even need to play the original loop. If you hear this song, you can pick them out. Let's hear that uh, Usher song if we can. We just get started. Yeah, man. searching for somebody that take you out You know, it is what it is. Uh, that also unsettles me just a little bit. But and and people, but you know, again, there's a lot of ways to make a great song, and you know, it's still kind of wild. For Amy's story, you spoke to Patrick Stump of Fallout Boy, and as I said, it's kind of funny because Patrick Stump was actually the person who taught me how to make drums on the computer version of GarageBand. It's much more intuitive on the iPad and iPhone versions, but back then, mm-hmm. you had to use something called musical typing. If you didn't have like a MIDI keyboard, if you just had your normal keyboard, you would hit musical typing, and then like the H would be the kick drum, and the J would be the snare on your actual computer keyboard and that's how you program in the drum beats and he showed me how to do that and they actually played me back in the day their garage band demos because back then it was just the album that uh, sugar i'm going down on it was out and they were working on the follow-up album and they played me some of the garage band demos for the follow-up album which sounded amazing. One of them happened to be Thanks for the Memories, which, as Patrick Stump told you, they ended up keeping some of the GarageBand stuff from the intro to that song because they tried redoing it with like real horns and strings and stuff, but the GarageBand stuff sounded better. And that was way back in the mid-2000s, and it's probably one of the first examples of that. But let's hear a little bit of that if we can. You can actually hear that that is fairly cheap synthesized horns and strings, yeah. And then I think maybe some real strings come in as well, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was kind of funny. Patrick is like a total garage band evangelist, and he's like really, really enthusiastic about it because, as he was telling me, he used a variety of different unnamed software, unnamed, but he didn't want to bash on them, and they were just always frustrating him because they require you know you to open several different programs at once, or they constantly crash, or they're just like really difficult and unintuitive to use on a computer. And he found GarageBand really easy, and then became you know its biggest fan to the point where. They they, Fall Out Boy, started having actual GarageBand loops and tracks, widgets of little audio tracks into the songs. And as Brian said, you can't tell the difference because it's not the primary focus of the song. And it actually maybe enhances the song even that it's sort of a synthesized acoustic sound that doesn't have the flaws that you might encounter with acoustic music. And uh, we were talking as well, Patrick Stump and I were talking about the fastest he'd ever been able to record a song with GarageBand. And he was telling me that he recently did a film score and he was in the studio and somebody was asking him, you know, we need something new for this part of the song or like we need a new idea. And he whipped out his computer and was able to play and completely draw up an entire new track in five minutes, which is like the length of time that anyone would take to actually listen to a song in the first place, right? Like a five-minute track and it takes five minutes to cut, which is just completely insane and really goes into that sort of uncanny valley territory of like, what are we all doing here if technology can do exactly our jobs in (laughs) way faster of a time in real time? Well, I would say that the way that Stump and a lot of other people have used GarageBand is different than what we're talking about because it's it's actually using its music making tools to, you know, compose parts as opposed to putting together pre-existing bits. Totally. What was inevitable, of course, was people making entire albums with GarageBand and that not even really being noticeable. And I think one of the key albums in the sort of GarageBand canon is Grimes and her album Visions which 100% made on GarageBand. And it should be noted now, so she's a really interesting artist, obviously. One of her big heroes is Trent Reznor. And Trent Reznor is an artist who used a lot of very sophisticated electronic equipment over the years but she was kind of like a homemade, homegrown Reznor. It's like making a Nine Inch Nails-inspired album with GarageBand. It's kind of literally like being the GarageBand version of some real arena band. The difference is striking. And notably, listen, you know, GarageBand is a limited piece of software. She now completely disses GarageBand and has moved on to more professional platforms. She hit the wall because, you know, eventually... You may want, if that's truly where you're recording your music, not just demoing it, you may want a lot more tools. But let's hear something from that Grimes album, Visions. Amy, have you ever messed around with GarageBand yourself? Have you ever made uh, recorded a song in GarageBand? I have, and I will not release any of that to the public for, for its benefit. Early effort, one of the things I put up on MySpace was using it more like a, a four-track recorder. There's a drum loop underneath, and then I think I played bass, an electric bass, and I played electric guitar and uh, recorded vocals. So it's a little bit of more of just using as a straight recorder. Let's hear something called Everything Everything, I think, because I was making up the lyrics as I went. 
I am. They had a very significant sort of garage band pop culture moment is their song, My Song 5. Now, anyone who's used GarageBand will know that the way that GarageBand labels your songs is as my song plus a number. So that's a real homage to where they were kind of demoing and in some cases recording these songs. And there's actually a particular like horn sound from GarageBand pitched down that is one of the signature sounds on that album and I think on that song. So let's hear Haim's My Song 5. found it hard, tried to I'll get it right when I am And now you can actually totally tell, and it speaks to the limitations of GarageBand, that they did not, in fact, record that song in GarageBand. Like the, <laughs> one of the things that people can do now, and actually an old trick, is you pull in stuff from, in the old days, from the demo, now from the GarageBand version, and you layer on top of that. So, and I think that's probably way more common than people actually recording full albums and releasing them in GarageBand. I mean, people even going back to the 80s would fly in things from demos because there's that old beat the demo idea that it's hard to, that your first performance of something is often the best. And so people struggle to like, they struggle to recreate the guitar tone they got. They struggled, just like we were talking about with Fall Boy and, and uh, that Thanks for the Memories. The version they released was not recorded, obviously, in GarageBand. But those little bits were. In the old days, if you recorded something on a four track without a drum machine, you were in big trouble because it probably wasn't in perfect time and it couldn't be matched to the actual album version. But now that everything's on a clock, you can very, very easily slide that into a recording. And so Haim is an example of that. And again, that's so clearly a professional record on a real piece of, of digital audio software. I was talking about something homemade like Lil Nas X, his song Old Town Road, which we talked about in last week's episode. In that case, that's not a necessarily a garage band recording, although we don't actually know where the original track came from because he got it from a site called BeatStars. And so I don't know what the producer recorded on, but talk about a little bit how BeatStars work because you're working on a story about that. Sorry for the spoiler. But that's an interesting case of kind of an ecology growing up based around the democratization of music. Yeah, so Lil Nas X, who has been all over the news and all over the charts after you know he was taken off the charts and then shot back up the charts, the base of the song Old Town Road came from a 19-year-old producer that no one had ever heard of in, I believe, Norway, who was just kind of like doing this kind of thing from his basement or wherever he was. And that sample was just something that Lil Nas X stumbled upon on this website called BeatStars and was like, you know, that's pretty cool. And the reason he was able to get it is because BeatStars is a marketplace that people can use to buy and share and kind of trade songs. And it's sort of like... Uh, like Uber for Beats in a way where you go on and it's very efficient. You find something you like, you take it and you pay a certain fee for it. And so the fee that he paid for that base of the track was around $20. It was very cheap because BeatStars has a variety of models where you can license it exclusively to your song or you can license it and only get it partially and other people can still use that track and kind of thing like that. But basically the point is that it was extremely fast and extremely cheap for him to be able to to create an entire song on top of the beat, which, by the way, had this famous banjo bit from a Nine Inch Nails song in it that was a little bit confusing to most people because everyone was wondering, you know, is Nine Inch Nails involved in this? What's the deal with it? And it's still not entirely clear where and how and 
why the song came together the way that it did, we only know that it came really, really quickly. So he purchased the beat on BeatStars in November last year, and it was released in like <laughs> December. It was literally like a few days of work, and then it just shot up the charts, and here we are in this discussion about not just the place of rap on country charts or about you know what genre really means in 2019, but also about what it means to make music and where it comes from and who actually owns parts of that. Yeah, and if not for the, even without the Nine Inch Nails aspect, I think Young Keo, who I believe is the name of the producer, I think he probably got like a hundred bucks for this or something. Like, yeah. Like, whoops. So again, that's what comes with democratization. So it has its pluses. Although I hear he's um, gotten something else recently, like he's coming to the States or something to do a bigger project. So the good things are happening for him as well. So you're saying he did it for the exposure <laughs> this is what the is what the way to do it. But just to show the appeal, this kind of thing, the thing I played before that I did was actually done with real instruments. This is the kind of thing that you can do with just, I don't know if Matt has it ready, but you can make on your phone perfectly listenable little loops and beats that maybe you can put up on BeatStars and maybe someone will pay you $20 and then they'll have a hit record for it and you'll get no additional money. So that's the new dream of the the music industry. What were your big takeaways in the end from the experience of digging into GarageBand, the history, and its impact on music? There were a couple of big things. One was that Apple as a company was able to do this and to kind of put its footprint in the music space. Of course, now we know Apple's involvement via Apple Music, via its acquisition of Shazam a few years ago, via all the other things that it's planning on doing, like a TV streaming service, obviously the iPod and iTunes. And GarageBand has always been like the very quiet piece of that puzzle, but more significant than most people would think if they you know, hadn't been exposed to it or hadn't really talked about or heard about its influence on music. And so that was really significant, just thinking about the presence of a large technology company in so many different ways on an entire industry from every which way, from the consumer side of things, things, from the creator side of things, from, you know, changing the structure, the fundamental DNA of the industry, how it operates, the food chain, if you will, or the chain of command, and then just hearing the effects on fans and listeners and being able to appreciate that people used to think of music a certain way and now they think of it as a different way just because GarageBand has made it easier and more accessible. Everybody hears a song and kind of has that inkling in the back of their head that's like, I could make something like that, maybe, if I tried hard enough, which has never been the case before. So one side note that I always have thought is really funny is the first people who had a company called Apple was actually the Beatles, of course. And it caused a little problem. Until 1991, this was a legal problem. Because in 1978, the Beatles' Apple sued Apple Computer for violating its trademark. In 1981, they reached a settlement, and the agreement was, you know, hey, we're two different things. The Beatles' Apple would stick to entertainment, and <laughs> and Apple Computer would stick to computers. No problem. And of course, that became a problem very quickly. There was something like the Apple II GS to go way back in the 80s, which had music-making capabilities. Then they had to have a new settlement. I think in 1991, and then it's all good, and Apple could make music. So that's what happened. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. Thanks to Amy X. Wong for being here to talk about GarageBand. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.